0: And all the people said, Amen. Thank you, Lindsay. <clears throat> this morning, as we're continuing our series of messages, we're in Acts 13 again. And really, it has to do with the missionary message. And what is that missionary message? We find the Apostle Paul, Saul, and soon he's, his name will become Paul. He and Barnabas have left <clears throat> Antioch, being sent out by the church. They laid hands on them and sent them away but they were sent by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit was leading them and guiding them. And we have here today one of the lengthier messages of the Apostle Paul as he preaching, and it's a, a typical of the kind of preaching that he would do in the synagogues in, uh, on this missionary journey. The question that we face, is what is the message that ought to be on? A, we should be proclaiming on a mission trip? Greg, I can't help but believe, I was profoundly affected when you and I went to Chile together. And as we served in the mountains and up in the Andes in Parada de Aquiles. And it was nothing but a goat farm and village, and we walked house to house, sometimes a long ways, between houses. Got a few thorns and cactus quills in our feet along the way. But we went to house to house. Unfortunately, my Spanish is not much, but Greg's is. And we got to share the gospel home to home, house to house, and scores of people giving their lives to Jesus Christ. A church now exists there where there was no church before, to the glory of God. This is what missionaries are to do. There are some mission trips where people go, and it's just a glorified vacation. Others go on mission trips to do help or relief or benevolence okay. Others go and they say, just don't make a conflict. But that wasn't Paul, and that wasn't Barnabas, because they were boldly proclaiming the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said, pray for me, Ephesians chapter 6, that the utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known The mystery of the gospel, of which I'm an ambassador in Christ, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Paul and Barnabas are sent out. They first go, John Mark's with them, maybe others. They go to Cyprus and they preach all around Cyprus. This is Barnabas' home region. So he knows the city, has contacts there, relatives there. They're preaching in Cyprus. But then, after their work's done, in Cyprus, <coughs> pardon me, they sail over to Asia Minor, what modern Turkey, and they, they uh, come to the port and they make their way inland about eight miles to a place called Perga in what we would call Turkey today. It was there that they, there was not a long ministry recorded by Luke there, but it's there that John Mark leaves. Luke doesn't tell us why he leaves. He just says that he leaves. But Paul felt like it was abandonment. And Paul really was a sore subject. And it caused a division between Paul and Barnabas eventually. But then they make their ways about a about hundred miles to the north, further into the interior of, of Asia Minor. And they come to a colony, a town that was substantive and important, and it's called Antioch of Pisidia or Pisidia-Antioch. Not the Antioch we knew before in Syria, but this is up in Asia Minor. It's about 100 miles. It's in the South Gal- Galatian region. Paul would write his letter to the Galatians, to these churches that are there. And so he's, he's gone north. It's a Roman colony. They were in charge of governing and a military center for South Galatia. There was a substantive Jewish population there and they have a synagogue there. Their language is Greek and Phrygian and uh, a Greek culture. We picked up the story that Dr. Luke gives us in verse number 15. They've come to the synagogue. It's on the Sabbath day. Now at the synagogue, there would be a ruling elder, at least one, and this ruling elder would be responsible for Worship services and for a worship order and for uh, prayer. He had a responsibility of, of <clears throat> uh, enlisting and appointing lay leaders to read scripture. They would read the scripture from the Torah, they would read scripture from the prophets, and they would read scripture from the writing. And then somebody was to give a homily, a message based on the text of that day that they were reading. From the scripture. It's there in the context on this Sabbath day. Some have identified six different elements to Jewish worship in a synagogue. The first is the Shema. That is, hear O Israel. The Lord our God is one. A common confession of who we are. But then there's prayer time. And then there was reading the book of the law. Reading of the prophets and writings. Then the homily on that day. And then it would conclude with a priestly blessing. So this day, the elders in the church recognize that there's two visitors from out of town. And Saul most likely presents himself as a rabbi, as indeed he was. And so in verse number 15, he says, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Well, that's like saying sickum to a dog. Oh, Paul is on that, isn't he? So notice in verse number 16, Paul stood up, I love this, and motioning with his hand, he's going to bring a word from God to them. Now his audience is made up of Israelites, Jews primarily, but also God-fearers. These are non-proselytes, but they are, they're Gentiles who've come to believe that Yahweh is God, to believe that there is only one God, and God has revealed himself through the law. And so they're there to study and to learn and to worship Yahweh, even though they've not converted fully to Judaism. So he's preaching a sermon. What is the sermon? When you read this text, Lindsay just read, it is, this is the theme of this great sermon, how the God of the people of Israel has brought the Savior, Jesus, as he promised. And so today we're going to look at this sermon. This sermon has a lot of characteristics that are similar to Peter's preaching In Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, similar to the preaching of Stephen, but it's Paul speaking under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. There are three different sections we could consider. First of all, there's sort of the beginning of this message, which is God's faithfulness to Israel. And then the promise of Jesus fulfilled by God. And then finally, an invitation to repent and to believe. But today I framed, as we walk through this text together, a series of six questions. And so if you're filling in the blanks, as I know some of you are, and uh, you might, let me just give you the answers before I preach. Number one, the question is, how has God acted toward us? So in the bulletin, you can say acted. How has God acted toward us? And that's the first part of the sermon. How has God acted? Number two, Who is the one God has sent for us? What's his name? Who is he? Number three, how was Jesus treated? Number four, what did Jesus do for us? Number five, what is God offering to us? And number six, what is your response to him? Let's walk through this passage of Scripture together today. First of all, how has God acted toward us? Beginning with verse number 16. You have your Bible, don't you? Follow along with me. Verse number 16. He stood up and began to motion with his hand. And he said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, God God-fearers. Listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers. Now, he's going to... The whole, the whole point that Paul's making in these several verses is how God has been faithful to us. How many of you all could say today, God's been faithful to us? Would you raise your hand? Has God been faithful to you? Has he been good to you? Has he blessed you? Has He? Listen, if you can't see the hand of God or the blessings of God in your life, then something terribly has gone wrong in you. God is working among us. And he says to these Israelites, he said, first of all, God chose you. Now listen, if you don't believe in the doctrine of election, you can't miss it. It's everywhere in the Bible. God is working. God is calling. God is choosing. And he chose our fathers. He called Abraham to go to a land that he would show him. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. There was a covenant relationship with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God He kept his covenant with Joseph. He provided for the children of Israel. And he allowed them to go into Egypt for their protection. But then he delivered them as well. God chose us to be his. God has blessed us. And God chose us. This is what Paul is reminding us. God chose his people. And he did it through Abraham. And he did it, (coughs) pardon me, so that we might be a blessing to all the nations. It's never for pride when we talk about election. It's all for the glory of God and that his name would be known among all the nations. Secondly, he exalted us. Not only did he choose us, but when we were in Egypt, God made his people great. He exalted them during their stay in the land of Egypt. He made us a great people. He blessed us in Egypt. He caused us to multiply. He kept us together as a family. He kept us together as a nation. And He made us His people. And He made us great in even in Egypt. But not only did He exalt us and bless us in Egypt... But he led us out with his strong and mighty hand. He gave an exodus to us. He delivered us out of slavery, delivered us out of bondage, and he made us a great nation. Verse 17, the Lord chose our fathers, made the people great in the land of Egypt, and with an uplifted arm, with his mighty arm, he led them out from it. Now I like verse number 18. For a period of about 40 years, He put up with them in the wilderness. Literally, it means He carried them. He held them, carried them, put up with them. The children of Israel, I think, were a precursor to Baptists. Grumbling seemed to be a spiritual gift for some of them complaining against God. This is written for our instruction, Paul says, in Corinthians. And so they complain. They not only... They get... They said, he brought us here to the Red Sea, and now we're going to be destroyed. And God opens up the Red Sea, and he brings them through the Red Sea on dry ground. And then he brings them three days' journey, and, and he brings them to a place of water. And they're griping and complaining, the water's not good. The water's bitter. He has a tree cut down. And he throws it in the, and it makes the tree that is bitter now sweet. And they drink the water that God provides for them. Not only that, he eventually, because they have a problem with water, has a rock that follows them. And it's gushes forward with water and provides for them. Not only that, then they wonder, what are we going to eat? We're running out of food. And God says, they begin to complain, oh, well, it's me. We're going to die. We should have stayed in Egypt where we had plenty of food. God says, listen, tomorrow morning there's going to be food. We're going to have dinner on the ground tomorrow. And he's going to provide it for all of us. So what it is, is a thing called manna. What does manna mean? The word manna means what is it? What is it? The ground was just covered with what is it? The people didn't ever see anything like it. they had like a coriander seed. It's like flour. It only lasted, We you picked it up in the morning, you can't hoard it for the next day. And, and the, the Bible tells us that it tastes like flour, uh, it tastes like flour fried in oil. My interpretation of that is that's Krispy Kreme donuts all over the ground. <laughs> and every morning they go up and fit their fill of Krispy Kremes and and They were blessed but then they, they're going to grumble and say, we want meat. And so he brings in quail. He gives them so many quail that they're about to vomit it up. He just provides them with meat. He's again and again, he's putting up with them. He's providing with them. God's giving the law to Moses on Sinai. And while he's on the, doing that, the children of Israel play a harlot with the idols that they've brought out of Egypt and begin to worship idols and, and throw in their gold trinkets and fashion a, a golden calf and and Aaron says, well, I don't know, we just put the gold in there, and this calf came out, right. And here's music going on, and what is going on? They're worshiping idols. God puts up with them. God says, "I'll just kill them all." No Moses, interceding for them. It was God carrying his people, protecting them. They opposed Moses and his leadership. God's called man. They opposed him in different places. They made his life miserable. Some of the opposition came at his through the mouth of his own sister and others. He brought them to the brink of going to the promised land, but they're so filled with fear that they didn't go into the land. And God says, you will not go. This generation will not go. And they wander for 40 years, and God carries them, takes care of them. But the next generation get to go. The remnant. It's always dangerous, isn't it? When we resist and say no to where God is leading us to go, he's saying, This is how God acted with us. This is what God did for our fathers. That's not all that he did for us. He blessed us incredibly. These are other ways that he blessed us incredibly. Notice <clears throat> what it says in the text, verse number 19. Then he destroyed seven nations. Who are these seven nations? They cross over, remember, the Jordan River on dry ground. They set up the stones as a monument. They set up stones in the street, in the stream and stones on the shore that they were at Mizpah that they would remember that God had rescued them. And then they defeat seven nations. Remember Jericho? They marched around it seven times and blew the horn and the walls came tumbling down and the only one saved out of it was Rahab and her family. It was God carrying his people defeating the enemies. Ai, after a A setback because of sin, defeat Ai. And then they drive out these nations the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, the Termite. They got rid of all of these because God's hand was with them. And then he dispersed the land among them. In the dispersion of the land, every tribe gets a portion of the land, they have an inheritance. In a land flowing with milk and honey that God had promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He gives them a land. Moses sees the land but can't go into the land. But Joshua, the son of Nun, leads him into the promised land. Some of the tribes stay on the east side of Jordan. Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe Manasseh. They go and help with the conquest, but after the conquest is secured, then they go back, and they're on the east side of Jordan, Transjordan. But then those on the west side of Jordan in the Promised Land are the nine tribes and the half-tribe of Manasseh. But the Levites, they have no place, no land inheritance, but they do have an inheritance, and they have a priestly ministry that God has given them and cities to dwell in, and they are provided by the resources of the other tribes. It's a distribution, an inheritance. This is what God's done for us. We were one out of people, now we're the people of God. We weren't where we were a nation, we were slaves. He made us a nation. And he's given us great and good promises of God. Oh, how good God's been to us. And he gave us judges because the people would wander into sin, disobey God neglect their lives spiritually, live in idolatry. Next thing you know, they're defeated by their enemies, and they're under oppression. They would cry out, and then God would raise up a judge. Like Gideon, like Samson, like Jephthah, like Ehud. And they would lead them. He said, God gave us judges because he didn't give up on us when we were sinful. That's a good God, ain't it? Amen. Aren't you glad God didn't just cast you out when you messed up? Then he granted us a king. We asked for a king. He said, I'll give you a king. And he gave us Saul, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. He ruled for 40 years. Saul was a warrior, a valiant fighter, a leader. He stood head and shoulders above other men. But there was something wrong in Saul. It's the Achilles heel of Saul as a leader. It's the disobedience and rebellion and wanted to do it his way and not God's way. God said, I would have had you to be a king forever, but you've disobeyed me and your family. You'll be replaced with another. Toward the end of his life, in the middle of his life, he becomes a rebel, a coward. He absolutely becomes crazy with envy and paranoia. And God removed him. Notice what it says in the scripture. Verse 21, they asked for a king. God gave him Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And after he had removed him. That's an impeachment that sticks when God removes you. God raised up a king and his name is David he's from the house of Jesse and he's a man after God's own heart and God promises that the lineage of Messiah will come through David and that there will be a kingdom with a rule that is forever God has and will provide he's been faithful has God been faithful to you? He was faithful to the children of Israel. And that's the point that Paul's making in the synagogue on that day. God's been faithful to our people. Second thing, who is the one God has sent for us? Oh, I love this part. Who is it? Verse 23. And from the descendants of this man, according to the promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. Don't you just love that? He says, God, he's, a, he's promised a Messiah through David. And that Messiah has come and he's a savior. And his name's Jesus. His name means savior, Jesus. Jehovah saves. And that's exactly what the angels, angel of the Lord said concerning Jesus. You shall call his name Jesus because he shall save his people from their sins. That's exactly the message of the angels to the shepherds on Christmas night when they sang, Born for you this day in the city of David is a Savior, Christ the Lord. Amen. God provided. He not only provided, He provided one in the lineage of the Old Testament prophets, and that is John the Baptist. John comes preaching repentance turning from sin and turning back to God. John says, I am not the Messiah. I am not even worthy to untie the sandals of the Messiah, but I'm coming, preparing the way of the Lord, preaching, making paths straight, preaching, repent and turn to God. I'm telling you, you can't receive Messiah unless you're repenting and turning to God. That's what John the Baptist did. And he preached Jesus. But in verse number 26, listen to what Paul has to say. Brothers, brethren, sons of Abraham's family, and those who fear God, listen. To us, the message of this salvation has been said. To us. (laughs) That is glorious. This Savior's come to us. Isn't that good news? For unto you is born this day. He's come for us. He came for Jews first. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and the Greek also. Aren't you glad we're included in that also? He's Born for you, born for me. To us, it's been sent. Tell your neighbor, it's to us the good news has come. It's to us. Amen. It's to us. For us. Next point. How was Jesus treated? Verse number 27. But those who live in Jerusalem, who lived in Jerusalem, and their rulers, that's the Jerusalemites, the people of Jerusalem, and their rulers, political leaders, And cultural leaders and religious leaders, how did they treat Jesus? And their rulers, verse 27, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets that are read every day, every Sabbath, Hmm. they rejected him. They looked at Jesus and they could not see the Son of God. They looked at Jesus. They could not see Messiah. They look at Jesus. They could not see Him. John said, when we beheld Him, we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten Son of God. But not them. When they beheld Him, they did not see that. When they beheld Him, they rejected Him. John says, John chapter 1, he says, He came to His own, but His own received Him not. They refused to recognize Him. They read, the, they read the Old Testament. They read the Torah. And they read the Proverbs and the Psalms. And, and they read the prophets. And they read it and they all point to Jesus. But they reject Him. It's an indictment on them spiritually. The blindness that they have, the stones that the, builder, the stone that the builders rejected becomes the chief stone. But they reject him. They read the law every Sabbath. They read the prophets every Sabbath, and they all point to him. Jesus himself said, "The law and the prophets testify of me." And Psalms. John chapter 5 verse 39 says you pore over scriptures thinking that in them you'll find eternal life but these very scriptures testify of me if you knew God's word you'd know it's me but your hearts are hardened hearts are hardened so how did they treat him not only recognize him they refused him but they wanted to kill him They tried him, but they couldn't find anything worthy of killing him. So they take him to Pilate, and they beg for Pilate to have him executed. And he's executed at the hand of Romans. But the motive behind it are Israelites that live in Jerusalem. And they did their very worst to him. They treated him like a criminal, and they crucified him on a cross. And they killed him. And while they were doing their worst to him, he was doing his best for us. (laughs) And what they meant for evil, God worked for good. Because he was fulfilling his plan to die for us. Which brings us to the next question. What did Jesus do for us? Verse 29, Paul makes it clear. And when they'd carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from a cross and laid him in a tomb, in a sepulcher. I love the next verse. Look at it, verse 30. But, ah, somebody said, thank God for the buts. But God raised him from the dead. Ooh, isn't that glorious? God raised him from the dead. Thank you, God. What did Jesus do for us on the cross? He died for our sins. He was buried in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. There's some proof in that. The proof of the resurrection of the dead. He, he says they're eyewitness proof. He summons eyewitnesses in his preaching. He says, I'm telling you that Jesus died and was buried, and he rose again. But God raised him from the dead. He appeared to many, many of the Galileans who had followed him to Jerusalem, and he appeared to them over several days. And it says, uh, the Scripture says, verse 31, And for many days he appeared to those who came with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses, to the people. He said there are people running all over Jerusalem saying, I saw Jesus literally with my eyes, and he rose again from the dead. Amazing. But Paul doesn't stop there. He said, let me summon the second, let me summon the second witness, and that's Scripture itself. And though, so he takes scripture and proving with, with scripture that Jesus rose again from the dead. He quotes Psalm chapter 2, verse number 7. And he says, <clears throat> You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Notice God raised him from the dead, he appeared, and we preach to you good tidings, good news of the promise made to our fathers. And he fulfilled the promise to our children and that he raised up Jesus. And it's written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's not talking about his birth, he's talking about his resurrection. And he says on this day, today, resurrection day, he's begotten him. Not that he didn't always exist, of course he did. Not that he wasn't eternal with the Father, he is eternal with the Father. But on that day, something happened that never happened before. A man killed, laid in the tomb, rose again, and defeated death. And from, a, from the womb of a tomb that no man had ever laid in, Jesus rose from the virgin tomb, triumphing over death. Hallelujah. Then he quotes Isaiah chapter 55, verse number 3. Notice with Look at the text with me. And it says, "For this, for, and for the fact he raised him up from the dead, no longer to, to decay, he's spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Isaiah 55. In 2 Samuel chapter number 7, Nathan the prophet tells David, I will establish your throne, the throne of this kingdom, your kingdom, forever. How can that be fulfilled? It's fulfilled not in David, it's fulfilled in Jesus, from the lineage of David. So he's born in Bethlehem of Judea, that is the house of David, This all works together. I'm telling you, God in heaven chose David from Bethlehem and had Jesus move from Nazareth to Bethlehem to be born in the city of David. (laughs) Because God is working this work of salvation. Now, some... Then he quotes Psalm 16, verse 10. You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Hmm. Verse 36, he says, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among the fathers and underwent decay. David died. David was buried. We have his tomb to today. David's dead and his body has decayed. But I'm telling you, his scripture is pointing to Messiah in the lineage of David. And he died and he was buried, but he didn't undergo decay. He rose again and he defeated death and it no longer holds a sting on us. That is glorious. And I've sat with some of you this year. Well, you buried a loved one. And you weep, you wept. Your heart was broke. But you had hope because he defeated the grave. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. This man's different than any other man that ever lived on the face of the earth. He died. And God raised him from the dead. Wow. Never to die again. Wow. What is God offering you? He's moving this toward an invitation, isn't he? Notice in verse number 38, what is the offer? It says, he raised him. He did not undergo decay. Therefore, verse 38, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Here's the offer. Forgiveness of all of your sins. Can somebody say amen about the heaven? He forgives all of your sins. Christ died for our sins. According to the scriptures, he was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. This is the heart of the gospel. He alone can forgive sins. He paid the full penalty of our sin. And only one can forgive us of sin, and that's the one who died for us and rose again. The sinless one died for the sinful ones that he might bring us to God glorious. Romans chapter 4, verse 25, He was delivered for our transgressions. He was raised because of our justification. Your sin, all of your sin. How many of you here today would confess with me, I know I'm a sinner, and I've sinned. Disobeyed God. Would you raise your hand? Me too. Both hands. The rest of you are just lying. We're all sinners. There's none righteous, no, not one. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth's not in us, the Bible says. Just imagine with me that this is not a Bible. Let's just imagine with me that this book is not a Bible. Let's say that this book is a record book let's just imagine that this record book has recorded in fine detail every sin you've ever committed in your life. For some of us, it's a multi-volume book. I'm talking about every word, every slight, every morsel of gossip that you've spread around, every lie, every thought, every lust. Sins when you're a boy, sins when you're a girl, sins when you're a teenager, sins as a young adult, sins in your marriage, sins with your children, sins in your work, sin in your life. Every act of rebellion against His will, and all of it, and all of its inky blackness, is in this book, and you bear it. it. You feel the weight of it. It is an indictment against you. But praise God, when Jesus came and lived a perfect life, that God in heaven took the sin of us all and laid it on Him. And He paid for it in sin for us. Paid our sins for us. The chastisement of our peace was laid upon Him. We read a moment ago. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, And by His scourging, we are healed. Dark, dark is the stain I cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there's flowing a crimson tide. Whiter than snow, you may be today. Grace, grace, God's grace. Woo, it's awesome, isn't it? How about this verse in a song? (laughs) I love it. My sin, mine, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole. Is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. And that girl already is. Hallelujah. Not only forgiven, but he frees us. Notice what it says in this text of Scripture. And through him, verse 39, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. He sets you free in ways that the law of Moses could never possibly free you. He justifies you. He looses you from bonds. And some of us are here today and we're under the bonds. There's bonds of brokenness that have us shackled. There's bonds of generational sin committed against us and that we have committed. There's bonds of guilt and bonds of shame. And there's bonds of defeat and there's bonds of hurt. And there's bonds in our mind and in our heart. And these shackles that hold us. But I'm telling you, in Jesus, He forgives you all of your sin, and He frees you to live the life that God's called you to live. Hallelujah. What a Savior. This is what God does for us. Such glorious gospel calls for a response. Listen to what Paul says in this response. And through Him, everyone who believes. The response is repentance and belief, turning from the sin and turning to Jesus Christ, embracing Him, loving Him, and trusting in Him, believing in Him, relying on Him, cleaving to Him, your allegiance to Him. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. The Bible says, whoever, whoever, listen close, please. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But there's a warning. And the warning is found at the end of this sermon. Therefore, take heed, be warned that the things spoken to the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers and marvel and perish, for I'm accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you'll never believe. Will someone describe it to you? The warning is this. Don't you reject this gospel. It's the only hope you have. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Folks, Peter preached there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. John said, in the Son is life. Those who have the Son have life, and those who do not have the Son of God do not have the life the life is found in the son it's in jesus and if you reject jesus you haven't life but you have death but you accept christ and you have life and forgiveness and freedom and you become a new person inside and god changes your life forever and ever so the gospel this gospel is to be on every missionary team and on missionary lips Missions here in town and missions far away. And all of our ministries ought to be about the gospel. And our worship ought to be about the gospel. And our community groups about the gospel. And the gospel we teach to each other, and preach to each other, and share with each other, and exhort one another that we can't save ourselves. We were saved by the precious blood of Jesus. And He is our Lord and our Master and our King. And He loves us. changing us by His grace and for His glory. What an awesome gospel He has given us. Amen. Father in heaven, as we prepare to open our hearts and sing today, may we sing of the greatness and goodness of God and the redemption and the gospel and the freedom and the forgiveness that He's given us. In Jesus' name, amen.